0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned. and make profit in the event those securities rise in value we recommend to consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 215. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwired.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode. Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash P-M-C. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash P-M-C. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3 through 5, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Louis Kami. He is the founder and chief investment officer at RLH Capital. We were introduced by Gary Reedy. He knew I've been wanting to do a SPAC episode for a while, and uh, he delivered the perfect guest. Uh, Louis runs a SPAC-focused hedge fund and has been investing in SPACs well before the SPAC craze we've been experiencing today. According to the article, a record pace for SPACs in 2021 on NASDAQ. The total number of SPAC IPOs reached record highs in 2021, increasing to 613 from 248 in 2020. Compare that to just 59 in 2019. I know every financial content creator has done something in SPACs and I'm no different here, but I think Lewis provides really interesting insights into the evolution of SPACs as well as his thoughts on what the future holds. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 215 of the Planet Microcat podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Lewis Kami. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Alpha Sets. stream backslash pmc that's s-t-r-e-a-m-r-g.co backslash p-m-c welcome back to the planet microcap podcast i'm your host robert kraft you can follow me on twitter at bobby k kraft that's v-o-b-b-y-k-k-r-e-f-t and today's guest on the show is a gentleman who uh we were introduced by uh frequent guests on the show as well as host of, uh, of a podcast on the SNM Podcast Network, Gary Reeby. So shout out to Gary. Uh, we got Louis Kami on the show today. He's the founder and CIO of RLH Capital. And today it's all about SPACs, baby. That's it. We're going. We're going full deep dive into the history, where we're at today, where we're going forward, and and how Louis really became interested in that. So with that, Louis, thank you for joining me today. How you doing, man?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm doing pretty well
0: good to have you on. So before we get into our full-on SPAC discussion and, you know, talking about everything having to do with that, you know, love to know where your passion for investing began and and how you got to where you're at today.
1: Sure. So I started investing at a really young age, you know, call it 11, 12, 13. My family was really into the market. And so I would save up money and buy some stock here and there. And then, you know, the dot-com bubble happened and all this money that I thought I had at the time disappeared. And so, that kind of sparked a curiosity to learning more and more. And, you know, the the best tuition you can get in the market is losing money. And it's better to do that early on because you tend to have a lot less money. And even though it may feel like all the money in the world. And so, you know, ever since then, I knew I wanted to study finance and went to school for finance and joined the finance world. But it really started from that really young age.
0: Very cool. So, okay, so started then, you know, catch us up to how you ended up doing it more professionally.
1: Sure. So I went to NYU for undergrad, studied finance and accounting, always knew I wanted to be on the buy side, but at the time, kind of the necessary stepping stone was to go through investment banking. So I, uh, you know, I joined Credit Suisse in the mergers and acquisitions group after school, spent about four and a half years there. Great experience, great group of people, although I don't think any of them are there anymore with all the turnover going on. Um, and then from, uh, from Credit Suisse, I joined a firm that was starting up called Three Corner Global, which was fashion in a traditional tiger cub sense. The founder of that firm was, his name was Gunnar Overstrom. He was a partner at Maverick running financials and business services. So kind of brought that same process over. Um, that's actually where I invested in my first SPAC. So we can come back to that. Um, and then, you know, left that firm in 2018 to join Citadel. I was at Citadel for two years um, and then decided to, that there's all this opportunity in SPACs and it'd be a, Interesting adventure to start RLH, and RLH is just named after my kids' initials. I just couldn't stand to come up with another cheesy hedge fund name, so I figured no one could hold that against me. And the fund now we just only look at SPACs.
0: So, all right. So take me back to that moment when you're invested in your first SPAC. You know, what was it about SPACs that caught your interest, caught your eye to now where you have literally, you have a fund that's specifically only investing in SPACs.
1: So at that point, I, I never heard of a SPAC. And actually I had a friend who was working at one and they announced a deal and he goes to me and says, I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not say, but I think the deal we just did is really interesting and you should have a look. And so I looked at it kind of under this fundamental process that we had at Three Corner and we ultimately liked it and ended up investing in it. But I also started studying the SPAC structure and you have units that split into common and warrants. And how does that work? And all of a sudden I realized, wait a second, the warrants used to trade at 40 cents and now they're $2. That's much more interesting than the common. And so, you know, started studying at the time and seeing like, well, that was what happened. You'd buy warrants back then for 40 cents. They would go to a dollar on announcement and $2 on deal close. And I thought to myself, this is Too good to be true. Anything in investing is too good to be true, isn't? So the next opportunity that came across, I invested 500 bucks in the warrants, and lo and behold, it turned into 2,000 dollars. And it's like, okay, all the stuff we're doing at Three Corner, looking for you know a differentiated view and your you know variant perception and a path to profitability, like that was really interesting. I love that, but this just seemed easy. And so you know, started kind of tracking all of the SPACs. And back then, you could do that on a monthly basis. You know, just. You had your spreadsheet? There weren't that many of them, um, and over time, you know, there were intersections in what I was covering versus some of these SPAC deals. So, an example is there's a SPAC that merged with an asset called Repay a Payments Company, which is you know still public today. And I, you know, always covered fintech and financials, cap markets, and so looking at a payments back was right in my bread and butter. And in this deal, they announced the deal, and the warrants were still trading at forty cents. So I thought that that was a tremendous opportunity, and you know, that worked out okay. And so, you know, over time, just kept keeping my eye on this. And, you know, this is all before the big boom that happened kind of at the end of 2021, or sorry, the end of 2020. But so back then it was kind of more steady eddy by these warrants. One day you wake up and there's a deal announcement and you're really excited, or, you know, there were a couple where they took out the warrant as part of the deal or in between announcement and closing. And so you obviously get really excited with that. But it always had me kind of focusing on the space And one thing that I noticed as the space grew, it wasn't covered with the same institutional rigor that I saw my peers covering, you know, financials at Citadel or consumer technology, et cetera. And so I just thought that there's probably an opportunity to bring that kind of institutional coverage model to SPACs. And the fact that there's always a trade to make, sometimes it's really exciting, like this warrant trade that I just described. But sometimes it's something as simple as SPAC arbitrage, which I think is a fine strategy, or it's you know, writing options on SPACs, or then it's, you know, if you're a little bit bigger and have access to private markets, investing in risk capital, investing in pipes, and then ultimately, long short equity. And so there's just so much you can do that, you know, you don't have to be a slave to what's the opportunity today, and that goes away, you know, you still have trades. And right now with, you know, upwards of 500 SPACs seeking targets, and, you know, the, the TAM, I hate using that word, but the, <laughs> the opportunity set is just really large.
0: So I want to take one quick step back because there might be some folks listening to this that are, you know, you know they've heard SPAC, they might know what the initials stand for, but the, they might not understand the full overall structure. So can you can you explain to us the structure of the SPAC and then why it became so popular in 2020 and. Yeah, we'll Well, start there and then we'll
1: go. If you only follow the media, you'll know that SPACs are the most evil financial product ever conceived of. But in reality, that's not the case. So the SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. And the way it works is a financial sponsor raises money, say $100 million. And in exchange for that, you get a share of stock and you get a fraction of a warrant. And it could be anywhere between, you know, we've seen them at 0.2 warrants per unit. We've seen them at one. And what's really unique about this fact structure is the sponsor has a finite amount of time to find a deal. And when they find their deal, they make an announcement, they put out all these financial projections, and then you as the investor have the choice. Do you want to get your original $10 back or do you want to stay in the deal? And so a lot of people, they ignore that fact. It's, it's pretty unique where you get all this information and then your, your uh, downside is protected. You can always get your $10 back. And by the way, your warrant builds value once a deal is announced and ultimately closed. And so, you know, when you think about traditional SPAC arbitrage, that's what you're playing for. And so what's really cool is there is a way to play SPACs that is a completely risk-free product. And so why they got so popular, you can really attribute it to DraftKings. So all of a sudden, you know, SPACs were a quiet product, a couple of deals a year, and then DraftKings happened and created, you know, all this noise and created a lot of value. And all of a sudden, you know, if you think about back to 2020, following the trough of the market, risk assets really got bid up and a SPAC was no different. Just another form of, you know, high risk equity. And so you saw that happen and a bunch of SPACs were raised and they were pursuing the riskiest asset types, those that may not generate revenue today and probably profitability is years out. And they were initially well received. You think of like a Nicola, which became kind of the the joke, but nickel at one point, you know, was 80 bucks a share. And so the rest of the sponsor community says, Well, if apparently the market loves these EV deals. Let me go give the market what it wants and find EV deals. And so that, you know, sentiment has obviously changed dramatically. But, you know, that's really how it started. And all of a sudden, like everything else, people started making all this money. And so, you know, the crowd chases the PL and, you know, then we start having pipes and we can get into some of the issues with the pipe market. But, you know, just going back to your question, usually what we've seen in conjunction with announcing a transaction is a sponsor will solicit a pipe, which is a private investment in public equity from financial sponsors to guarantee a certain amount of cash to the target.
0: So I wanted to hit on the, the idea of risk when we're talking about SPACs, because you mentioned that, you know, it is, is high risk. And I understand that it can be high risk, especially if the deal that they end up finding for it is, you know, pre-rev, not profitable, you know, maybe burning cash forever, you know, but is it, it's not necessarily the structure itself that's risky, but now that, you know, with the success of DraftKings and some of these other names, you know, it just now SPACs are hunting these types of companies to put into that vehicle, right? Like that's what really made it inherently risky.
1: Right. And well, listen, because of your ability to get your $10 back, inherently, there's no risk, right? There's no risk from, the time you invest, if you're investing at or below trust, up until the redemption deadline, at that point, you can always get your money back. And so it's after that point, when it goes from a SPAC to an equity where there's risk, just like there is any other equity. And to exactly your point, you could have a sponsor that did a deal that's, you know, one of my favorite deals, there's no real revenue for the next few years. And so that is inherently more risky than when you look at something that's generating EBITDA today. And as a a track record of you know steady eddy growth, like you know, that's just SPAC or non-SPAC, you know, that's a safer uh, profile.
0: I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. I mean, what's what's some of the upside for these companies to go public via a SPAC versus, you know, just a direct a direct listing on NYSE or NASDAQ or uh, any of these exchanges?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, just going back to the media comment, the media has been pretty bearish on SPACs, but in reality, the challenges in 2021 were all new issues, right? You can think about Robinhood and Coinbase, those weren't SPACs, those are still, you know, still equities that are trading well below where they entered the public markets. And so, You know, I think as you think about there's a bunch of different options, the SPAC route tends to be the fastest. As of now, you're able to disclose the most information because a SPAC transaction is considered a merger In a merger you're able to provide forecasts and an IPO you're not. But I have to, you know, that always comes up, but I have to point out one thing. The dirty little secret is when you do an IPO, you know, the guy at the big hedge fund gets to call the underwriter and say like, what are the forecasts? And while you're not allowed to Send anything in writing. You're allowed to read them over the phone. I've, I've done this a lot in my career, where you just sit there and, you know, you call broker one and you're like, "Hey, what's the, your analyst revenue forecast for the next three years and EBITDA?" You call broker two, you call broker three, you make your own consensus, and then you have the numbers. And so that creates an information asymmetry between institutional and retail investors. Which, what I love about the SPAC product, it has its flaws, undoubtedly but in terms of leveling the playing field, it certainly does that a bit. And so, you know, just coming back, if you're, in theory, you have a preset valuation, so you're not, you know, you've seen all these deals where they revise the range up, they revise it down on an IPO. Uh, If there's a pipe involved, you have some sort of certainty on the minimum level of cash you're gonna receive. You have the ability to provide more information and meet with more investors. If you think about the average it takes about four months between announcement and close, and during that time, Manager can meet, an IR can meet with investors, even individual investors, and you can learn more about the story, decide, do I want to stay in this or do I want to ultimately redeem for my 10? And so those are just a couple of reasons why, you know, you may want to go this back route versus a traditional IPO or direct listing.
0: Gotcha. So let me ask you a question in terms of your own uh, investing strategy in SPACs. I mean, do you, do you actually even really care about the deal that actually gets done or are you more tracking, tracking it for the trade? You know, like what, what, how do you think about it?
1: Well, so the thesis with which I decided to kind of pursue RLH is that there's always money to be made in SPACs, kind of what I was saying before, whether it's, you know, you can be an investor in the sponsor, you can invest in the IPOs and look at these anchor deals, you can invest in, you know, pre-announcement, post-announcement, common warrants, units, pipes, long, short, there's just so much you could do, but you know, I, I'm the sole investment professional, and so there's only a finite amount of time that I have and a finite amount of capital. And so, unfortunately, it didn't make sense to do all those things at once. And so the way I decided to start was on the safer end of the risk spectrum, thinking that, you know, if I generate kind of some of these more steady-eddy returns, and then I see an opportunity, I can go back to my investor base and say, hey, I found something. This is a little more interesting, a little higher risk, but it's worth maybe allocating your some capital and, and discussing Um, So do I care? Absolutely. Because if I'm owning DWAC, for instance, which has gone to the moon, you know, that's a great way to make a ton of money instead of owning something where I'm going to have to redeem it at 10 because, you know, they can't get the stock up. And so, you know, and and that's part luck, right? You you never know when you invest in a SPAC right now, are they going to hit the, you know, the one in 100. But the nice thing is all of your volatility is asymmetric to the upside. And so you don't have to worry about the deal going to $7 because you have that redemption deadline. Um, but yeah, listen, I think, I think it's good for the SPAC industry if deals are done are better received, you know, right now at the, and, and stop me if I'm, I'm going off tangent here, but no, no, you know, right now the, the average deal that's closed is trading at seven, eight bucks. And so then even if you see an interesting deal, you kind of, Tell yourself, well, all of these facts trade down. Why am I going to bet on myself to find the the one that doesn't? And you know, then that creates these issues of high redemptions and spacks are bad. And then you have all these low float equities trading. And so from my standpoint, what I'd love to see is a, a couple, not a couple, but there's so many specs, a lot of really good deals. The market right now is clearly favoring cash flow generating value stocks versus, you know, some of these higher growth, you know, more VC type investments. Not that there's anything wrong with them. It's just market preference right now. And so I'd love to see kind of your beaten race stories where all of a sudden people realize there are good assets that can come public through a SPAC. And you know, I'm hopeful that sponsors are really smart. They'll figure this out, but that's kind of the path to a more normalized SPAC market where you don't know, just get the media hating on SPACs.
0: Where where does the hate come from? Like why, why is there that media hate for SPACs? I mean, I, I don't I don't really get it. It's just, I mean, it's just another. Uh, why, well, why another SPACs?
1: I think the, the more interesting question is why SPACs over, you know, IPOs or direct listings as we mentioned before. I going to ask that. Come on, man. You
0: know. Sorry. I know well, what listen, I'm doing. Wh- I know what I'm doing. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding.
1: Wh- 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 why does the media hate SPACs? Because the average SPAC is down. You've lost a lot of money investing in SPACs, one. Two is a lot of SPACs have just missed numbers. And, and this whole dynamic of we're going to give you our five-year forecast, but then we miss our first-year number. You know, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. And the other thing, and, you know, some guys in the media have harped on this, the incentives for the longest time, they're starting a better now, have just been totally misaligned. And so, you know, the way your, your typical SPAC works is the sponsor keeps 20% of the capital raise. And if you think about how that compares to, say, private equity, in private equity, the sponsor keeps 20% of the profit. And so you're effectively baking in that you're going to double your investors' money to justify this 20%. And so you can have a lot of situations, and I tweeted about one a, a little while ago, where you know the SPAC trades to five or six, your public investors have lost fifty percent, and yet your sponsors are well ahead, and that and you know that's the type of stuff that you know gets DC involved and whatnot. But lately, you're starting to see more and more of sponsors forfeiting some economics, or more importantly, tying it to share price, like. If you're going to if you want me to believe your 2025 number, I have no problem with you as a sponsor getting rich because you crush your 2025 number. I just have an issue with you getting rich today bailing and you're not even there when the 2022 number gets printed. And so what's good about how, you know, the way the market has grown is targets are more sophisticated, bankers advising targets are more sophisticated. So you're starting to see more and more of those better aligned
0: transactions. Got it. All right, so, you know, I was just kidding. I'm glad you you came up with that question. Um, so so let let's ask that. You know why what why has there been this preference for SPAC versus an IPO for some of these companies?
1: Well, I, I think it's what I mentioned earlier. You know, it, if you rewind the clock, SPACs were a great product, and so you wanted to partner with a SPAC, particularly a a better known SPAC, because you get kind of that boost right away. And I mean, there's so many deals that traded well; they were able to redeem their warrant, and now they're trading. You know below where their warrants were trading it, it's pretty terrible um but and listen there, there's still good features of SPACs I mean we've kind of mentioned some of them in terms of the disclosure the the minimum capital and candidly now with markets a bit more volatile you know we'll see if having a SPAC out there is is really a value add like you may not you know if you're a really large company well known it's always going to be easy to IPO but if you're in the mid-cap space right now in a volatile market you may not be able to IPO. You may not be able to get, you know, capital markets desks, you know, time and awareness, but Hey, you've got about 600 SPACs. And, you know, what's nice now is you can probably pick from the higher quality ones. Who do you think is, you know, everyone's so connected, right? Who's in my network that I trust that makes sense and has expertise in my area. You know, Jeffrey's put together a really interesting uh, report showing that, the key factor determining the success or failure of a SPAC is whether that sponsor has experience in the industry. And so I think you'll see more kind of aligned transactions as opposed to, you know, these SPACs that would come out and say, we're going to do a deal in consumer and then they, you know, do an EV deal or, or whatnot. You just, you know, that was more play the hot space, and that's it. So I think you'll start to see more logical um, transactions.
0: So where are we at? I mean, you kind of alluded to this already, but like where are we at right now? Is the SPAC market still it? I mean, it's not it's clearly not as hot as it was because there have been a lot of folks, you know, that lost money from it. But it wasn't again, it wasn't so much from the 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 vehicle and the idea of a SPAC. It was more because the deals that were being uh sponsored were just not. Yeah.
1: And the example, the example I always give to that is there was a a Peloton competitor called Beachbody that came out through a SPAC. Yep. Yeah. It's really struggled. But if you graph it versus Peloton, they're both down 80%. You know, there's nothing to do with one was a SPAC, and one wasn't. It happens, it has to do with the fact that there are two fitness companies that are losing money and the market decided that that's just not in favor right now. And so, you know, I think it's exactly what you were saying earlier. I think it's more about the types of transactions that we'll see And hoping that these SPAC sponsors are smart enough to pivot and realize, you know, there may not be something like EV in the middle of 2020 that, you know, gets your stock up 8x, but you could still, you know, bring a deal to market at at a right valuation that can create value over time.
0: So, I mean, will there still be more, you know, celebrity sponsored SPACs that, uh, I'd rather see celebrity sponsored SPACs than I would be than celebrity sponsored like NFTs in, in (laughs) in full fairness, you know, but like. Are we, are, is it, are we still going to be uh, seeing that for, for the time being? Or I don't know, that's probably not going to go I,
1: away. I think we're going to see some spec issue in SLOW. Obviously there's already a bunch of uh, celebrity uh, backed or celebrity connected SPACs. I don't think we've seen many examples where the celebrity has added value in terms of sourcing a deal that the market likes, but hopefully that changes. I mean, like I said, I'm rooting for the SPAC market and I don't care if it's a celebrity or a savvy investor or a sophisticated operator. You know, for me, it's just you want to see good deals that are, you know, I think at this point, EBITDA positive and have a kind of a path to beating and raising numbers.
0: So, so I mean, do you think the SPAC market is just always going to be this kind of like volatile, you know, all right, it's in vogue again because, you know, that one deal just it, another DraftKings just hit. Here we go. Everything else. Now everybody's going to go public via SPAC or oh now they all they all you know went to the more risky stuff and now it's going down like is it just always going to be like well, this
1: well what DraftKings did was it, it awakened all these investment bankers eyes to we should push SPACs and so anyone who had you know the, the general formula for how much money you need to raise a SPAC is two million dollars plus two percent of what you raise and then you can syndicate some of that out so a 200 million dollars SPAC used to be six million bucks to raise it and then if you don't have six million bucks you bringing investors to invest in your risk capital. And so what I think happened when you look at the 600 SPACs, give or take that are out there today, you have a lot of people that shouldn't have a SPAC, like candidly, like it looked really easy. It was pretty cheap. The returns from risk capital were really high. And so that just brought a lot of people to the table and at, at a point where almost any deal was well received. So you didn't have to be a savvy deal maker, You just had to be someone. And if you were you know, lucky enough to pair up with a Goldman Sachs, you know, you could tap their M and A group, and they want, you know, they want to see a successful outcome for un- spacs underwritten by them, and so that's kind of a, I don't want to call it a sure thing, but a high probability, you know, trade that you're going to find a deal. And again, if you're thinking back in late 2020 terms, a deal that's going to be really well received, you'll get a quick payday and move on. And so, I don't think it's going to be as volatile as he said. I think, you know, there's just too many spacs right now with 600. And I don't know what the right number is, but I think over time what you're going to see is the 600 dwindle down to 100, 200, some much smaller number of firms that are capable of doing deals. Like when you see KKR has a SPAC, KKR's business is doing deals. So it's not surprising to me that this is just another vehicle because they're on the hunt with a huge organization to hunt for deals. And maybe they find one that they think fits best in this wrapper. But when it's, you know, Six guys working out of like a a WeWork, you know, they have to be really connected and really differentiated in order to compete with the other 600 SPACs out there. And so I think you're going to see a bunch of liquidations. I'm a bit more bullish than some of the guys saying 50 to 70% because there's always deals to be done and they have a lot of promote that they can forfeit to help the terms. Um, But I think you'll naturally see the market shrink. And one way the market's shrinking is through redemption rates. Right, so if you look at the average January redemption rate, eighty-two percent. So eighty-two percent of investors in these deals don't want to go from the SPAC stage where they have the ten-dollar floor to the DSPAC stage where they're in, you know, a traditional equity. And so, in some way, that's the market shrinking itself. That can you imagine if all of a sudden of these five hundred D de- five hundred SPACs, the one hundred fifty billion or whatnot of market cap, if it's all but twenty percent redeemed, and all of a sudden we're saying 30 billion and all of a sudden that's not such a big number. Now, again, as someone who's rooting for the SPAC market, 80% redemptions is a bad thing. So I hope that gets better. But you can see that the market is getting smarter and more discerning because at the beginning of 2021, you know, we were seeing 7%, 15%, 12%. And now we're at 82%. So, you know, sponsors need to be much smarter about how they get a deal financed. And going back to pipes, the pipe market is pretty challenged right now so you know it's um and and what's really interesting is at the risk of going off tangent the equity pipe market is pretty challenged with the structured pipe market being convertible equity or convertible preferred equity and convertible debt is wide open and so you think about well what types of companies can support you know a, an instrument where you have to pay interest or pay dividend and it's cash regenerative companies it's another reason why I think we're going to move in that direction although you know, we have seen some recently, which were back to the no no profitability for a long time in the hockey stick forecast. So maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm a little bit ahead of where the market needs to get to.
0: No, for sure. Uh, so one big phrase that's that you, is used in the SPAC market quite a bit, and you see a lot of investors in, in our within our universe asking for sourcing on this is that this the idea of a, a DSPAC SPAC deal. You know what what it, what does that mean? You know, and, and how does a company then get there?
1: So the D-SPAC is, if we go through the time on a SPAC announces a deal, there's about four to five months between the announcement and closing where they're preparing SEC filings or meeting with investors, then they hold a vote. And there's two parts to the vote. The first part is, as a shareholder, you're voting for or against the transaction. And almost everyone votes for because there's no reason not to. And then there's the redemption component. And so... And those two votes are independent, which is really interesting if you think about it, that you can vote for a deal, but then you know, cash out your shares. And so at that point, if all of the closing conditions are met, the redemption floor goes away and it's no longer a SPAC, it's the underlying company. DraftKings, for example, is what we said. And once that happens, you can't get your $10 back and it trades like any other stock.
0: Got it. So, so basically the D-SPAC is if it's post-
1: it's the okay. completion of the MA
0: transaction. Got it. So why so why do we what is there anything interesting when you look at some of these the like I get I guess right now folks are just looking for the ones that are down the 50, 60 percent because they were risky transactions? Is that is that really what's been going on when people are looking for D SPACs right now?
1: Well, so there's a few dynamics, right? The first is most of these D spacs are trading down, and so Part of it is if they have a pipe, the pipe investors are allowed to start hedging their investment afterwards. So you have that negative technical pressure. And the other is just SPACs have such a poor track record right now. It wouldn't surprise me if you saw investors or algos kind of shorting them indiscriminately. And so that creates some near-term volatility. And again, the challenge with that is if you go back to, you know, if there's a deal going on that you like, it's like, well, if I know there's going to be this volatility, I'd rather buy into that than before. But that's not the question you're asking. Um, and so, you know, what we've seen in these SPAC markets, a lot of kind of, actually a lot, there's the baby's been thrown with, with the bathwater. A lot of these deals are, are not great deals, but, you know, at a certain price, something's really interesting. It's either interesting because it's cheap on valuation or it's interesting because the risk reward if they actually execute on their plan or a percentage of their plan is really interesting. And so you're right. I actually posted on Twitter a couple of weeks back, here's a list of broken SPACs. And I define a broken SPAC as just trading under 10 that's EBITDA profitable, because at that point you can decide like, hey, there's real cash flow here. What's going to happen? And, and one such example that you know I've been kicking around is Sunlight, ticker S-U-N-L. And full disclosure, I own a little bit, but it's a, it's a really small position. So this was a SPAC backed by Apollo that bought a company that facilitates uh, lending for solar panel purchases. So if you want solar for your house, you have the guy come sells it to you and you need to finance it. He'll pull up an app, you know the Sunlight app, and he can facilitate financing for you. Um, and so what's really interesting is this is a profitable company, trades at $3.42, again, sophisticated sponsor who knows a lot about financing. And on street numbers, now this is trading at under seven times EBITDA. And I just think that's really interesting for a company that's supposed to grow, again, if you believe street numbers, To grow EBITDA by 30% in 2022 and again by 40% in 2023. And I look at that and say, even if they miss these numbers slightly, for a company that has a net cash position on its balance sheet levered to a structural theme like solar, that looks really interesting. And so I think there's a whole handful of these and they warrant investor attention. And it wouldn't surprise me if you know they eventually attracted private equity attention too, because you look like at an asset for under seven times EBITDA that could be you know that has balance sheet capacity for debt that's a, that's a screaming LBO. And so it wouldn't surprise me if in the coming months we saw more private equity firms kind of hunting cuz you know everyone complains that asset prices are so high but I just quoted you one that's under 7 times EBITDA so unless it's really broken and maybe it is you know that's that would be interesting to me as a sponsor and like I said there's a there's a pretty big list cuz of how poorly these SPACs have traded and I think you know when you were asking what gets people excited again about SPACs. I think that could be you know if you have a well-known sponsor come in and buy this out, even if it's not back at ten, but it's at eight bucks. Now all of a sudden you have investor eyes and capital coming back to this market.
0: What would what do you what would you say is the most confusing the the part about SPACs that confuses people the most? I mean, because even for me personally, like. When I first, I'm asking lots of very basic questions about SPACs. Like I'm not yeah. even pretend like I'm a SPAC expert or anything like that. Supposing a lot of things based on your answers. Okay. So anybody listening that thinks I'm, I very much not. Um, but what, what do you, what do you think confuses most people like me that aren't really following the SPAC market as closely that they should maybe, maybe rethink or how to think about this?
1: It, it's probably all the dates. So first date you have an ipo then the second date after the ipo is when the units split and you can trade the underlying warrants and shares and then the next date is the deal announcement then you have all the filings and then the next date is the redemption deadline and the vote and then there's a deal close. and then after the deal close, there's the pipe registration which could potentially lead to some selling and so there's all these dates to keep track of and sometimes people forget when can i get my ten dollars back the stock's at eight i want my ten dollars back it's like well you missed your deadline. And so to some extent you have to track all those deadlines, but that's at the expense of protecting your capital, right? If you, if you're worried that the market's going to trade down, but you invest in a deal, you know, you can get your $10 back, even if it trades down. So, you know, it's a trade-off for that downside protection versus tracking these dates. But once that pipe is registered, it's just like owning any other stock. Now, some people get confused because there's warrants and what's a warrant and, you know, a warrant is just like a call option, but, you know, to someone who doesn't spend time, they could, you know, go on their computer and type in a ticker and say, there's a unit, a common and a warrant. What is all this? This is confusing. When I buy shares of Microsoft, it's just Microsoft. And so I think it's a combination of, you know, the units, or sorry, the number of securities and the dates, but, you know, over time, the dates kind of take care of themselves. And if a SPAC deal works out, the units ultimately get, uh, sorry, the warrants get redeemed. And, you kind of end up at the same place. But while you're on that journey there, there's definitely a little more complexity.
0: Got it. What, what I mean, other than DraftKings, what prior to this new SPAC boom was the previous like SPAC darling that everyone was like, oh, this was, SPACs are amazing. Like We should all do SPACs.
1: Honestly, I don't think there was one. And, and so I'll go back. I'll go back to, you know, my first SPAC investment was this company, you know, it was 2015. It was a company called Lindblad, L-I-N-D. I'm not a shareholder anymore, but, you know, if you go back and look at it, it's a really interesting timeline. So I'm I'm just pulling the stock price chart here. So this deal closed in summer of 2015 and the stock just sat at $10, literally sat plus or minus 10 until March 2018. So almost three years. And during that time, my boss was not thrilled with me. Markets were going up. And what this deal was, it was a high-end cruise company and they needed capital for new ships. And as you know, or can imagine, you don't just get this money and go to the ship store and you buy a ship, right? It has to be engineered and designed and it takes time. And from some combination of the market, just not willing to trust or the fact that no one knew this company existed and it was small and illiquid, it was almost as if that first ship had to actually hit the water for the market to react, and then all of a sudden, you know, the stock went from ten bucks to just under twenty before COVID happened, and so it it actually played out. And if you compare the results to their investor presentation, like sure, some things took a little bit longer, but this was kind of one of those, you know, when not if stories. But you know, I remember pitching this over and over. It's talking about how incredible the story is, and. Either people are like, whatever, I've never heard of it, or it's too illiquid. And so, you know, I I can't really, and, you know, that same sponsor who I actually have a lot of respect for, did another deal called Scission and similar dynamic. I mean, it actually traded really well, peaked at 18, then ran into some operational issues and ultimately they sold it for 10. So, you know, (laughs) depending on how you traded it, you know, but again, small company, not so liquid, you know, what really happened that was interesting with the boom, as you called it, is you had a lot of liquidity coming into this market. You had retail coming in, and that created enough opportunity for institutional to play too. Now, some of the institutions got cute with these pipes. And so what they were seeing is these deals were being announced and being so well received that the, the $10 back would pop 40, 50, 60, 80%. And they all wanted to raise these pipes to be able to, to have a minimum level of cash delivered to the target. And so all these, you know, savvy investors came in and said, well, this is like an IPO that pops 50% on day one, except we can actually get a lot more. I mean, in my time requesting IPOs at you know at hedge funds, the allocations were always terrible. And you get a sob story on why you requested $10 million or a thing about 50,000 But here you could actually get a big chunk. The problem was you get in and all of a sudden you're locked in for four months. And what you saw happen with a lot of these deals is people were committing in early 2021. And by the time the deal closed in the summer, the market was totally different. And in a lot of cases you saw, you know, it popped 60% up to $16 hit 10 before the deal closed, because you can't really go much below 10 and then the deal closed. And before the pipe is registered, it dropped, you know, 30, 40%. And so it's just uh you know, so so you kind of brought in the big guns with institutions, and then you burn them, and they're kind of gone now. So, you know, it's it's back to really needing to rebuild credibility here.
0: So, where do you where do you find the opportunity right now? I mean, do you see yourself as being a SPAC investor for the rest of your life? Rest,
1: hopefully, rest of my life is a really long time. I really enjoy going through SPACs. I think not a lot of people are doing it, and. I'd rather hunt where there's less hunters. Um, Like I said, I think the market is too big right now. And so hopefully that shrinks over time. You know, when when I look at opportunities right now, there's a couple I'd highlight. I think core SPAC arbitrage is still a good strategy. And so what that means is you're buying these units below trust value. So let's give give an example. You buy something at 10 that has $10.20 in trust. And so I know if I hold this through uh, you know, expiration and, and the duration of these SPACs is actually shortening, which is kind of a nice feature. But so let's just make it up and say for one year, I know that if I hold this piece of paper for a year, I make two percent. And then I have a warrant. Let's just assume it's a whole warrant. And if they do a good deal, and if a if a spax trades at around ten, the warrant is worth a little over two dollars. Most haven't been holding up there, but let's just talk about like the dream case. So all of a sudden, I have a two dollar warrant. I've now made, you know, 20% on my investment with no risk. Like that is a phenomenal return. And I'm not playing for that, by the way. I think playing for mid to high single digits is much more reasonable. Um, and so to me, that's, you know, when I pitch investors, I say, look, on my SPAC art portfolio, I'm looking for, call it 7, 8%. I run with some leverage, but, you know, 7, 8% up and zero down. And so that is a really compelling risk reward. Um, and so, and I think that's, you know, It really depends on what's your cost of capital. Is that interesting? you know, The average investor probably doesn't want to go on margin, so let's pretend they don't. Is a 7% return with no downside attractive or not? That's a personal decision. Um, Then if you want to get some other strategies I do or kind of writing options against SPAC. So again, you're trying to capture a spread. Um, If you don't like 7% for SPAC ARB, you probably won't like writing these options. It's a bit tedious and whatnot. Um, And I like that it's tedious because it discourages a lot of other people from doing it. Then you can kind of migrate down the risk spectrum and say, you know, well, what about these warrants? Warrants have come under a lot of pressure. They're down 20 to 30% since the beginning of the year. The average warrant right now is trading at, you know, give or take 45 cents prior to a deal closing. And if a deal closes and it goes well, that warrant can be worth a dollar, $2, $3 and more. And so All of a sudden, you're looking at a trade that has significant upside potential. Now, the downside is if a deal doesn't get consummated, that warrants worth zero. So you are truly playing, you know, 40 cents could be zero, could be multiple dollars. But, you know, again, depending on your risk return threshold, that could be interesting. And what's interesting about that is you can play that before a deal is announced and just say, you know, what? I really like this sponsor. I'm going to invest in their warrant. I think they'll do a good deal. I think they'll make you money. Or you can do it after a deal is announced and say, I study this deal. It's really interesting. Why would I want to buy the common? I'd rather buy the warrant to get more juice to it. And then, you know, once the deal is closed and it's a traditional equity, at that point, you can look at any security you want and say, I like this on the long side. I like this on the short side. Um, And so there's just a lot of different ways to to play it. I think the days of just assuming that I'm going to buy, you know, a SPAC before it announces a deal and that the common will trade well above 10, those are probably behind us for now, just given some of the, you know, spac performance. But the flip side is, you know, you talk to a lot of SPAC sponsors and and they kind of understand what they need to do to work and they're kind of bracing for some short-term volatility. And I think that could be an interesting opportunity to get into a, to a, to a name you like and, and i'll give you another like an, another example so there's a spec called queen's gambit and full disclosure we, we own it in the fund um and they've already come out and beat and raised their numbers once so you know this track record that all spacs kind of overinflate their estimates and then whiff that may not be the case right? or or you look at another spac uh cnd also we own some in the fund where you know it's it's um their business is primarily earning float income on their USDC so For you crypto guys out there, you probably know a whole hell of a lot more of it than I do. And I know that there are some regulatory concerns, but if you just look at you know, the projections, how the business is tracking versus the initial projections, you can track USDC outstanding in real time and they're running way ahead. And they assume no interest rate hikes, which based on, you know, some of the news this morning and the CPI print, you know, it seems like we're going to get some. And so they're kind of setting it up off the back to be able to raise their numbers. And so I think that these sponsors are just getting smarter and knowing that, you know, we need to kind of position ourselves to beat and raise and have some positive outcomes. And again, I'm rooting for all of the SPACs to do well. I know they won't. Honestly, I know most SPACs will probably do poorly because they're, they have to refigure out the playbook. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity along the way.
0: Absolutely. So before I let you go here today, my, my last question for you is, you know, what what's your advice for it, new investors to SPACs or investors out there that have maybe dabbled? Uh, how, how should they think about SPACs moving forward in 2022?
1: You really need to pay attention to what point we are in the SPACs lifecycle and how much risk you're comfortable taking. You know, to me, everything in investing is about what is the risk adjusted returns. And some investors are comfortable with Low risk and some with higher risk. And so, you know, right now, if you buy a SPAC that's yielding 3.5% and you can redeem it, that's probably the safest trade out there. Why you would rather own treasuries versus a SPAC, I don't know. A SPAC is backed by the same treasury. So, you know, you can really go to that, you know, that safest place of, hey, I put all my money in CDs earning 50 basis points. Well, you can move that to a SPAC and earn more and potentially have some tax advantages. But Or you can look at some of these deals and say, hey, I think these sponsors have figured it out. I'm willing to stay in this deal. But I know that once that redemption date passes, there's real risk here, just like any other stock. And so, you know, I would say, be really discerning about these deals. Memorize the timeline. SPACs are fairly transparent. They have to put out all these SEC docs that say when it goes X redemption, when when the record date is, et cetera. And so if you kind of decide, you know, Why are you using this vehicle? Are you using it for some yield? Are you using it to play the deals? Are you using it to get warrants on the cheap? So just the same way we think about thesis creep and institutional investing, you kind of have to know why do you own this instrument?
0: Very good. All right. Well, with that, Lewis, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you? You said you had a Twitter account, right? So where can they follow you on Twitter and then also your website to find more information on on RLH? No
1: website because candidly I, I haven't quite figured out the SEC hedge fund marketing rules. And so I just figured, uh, no website is probably safer. <laughs>
0: but but, but uh, I have a Twitter. That's fine. No, I'm just messing. With
1: well, <laughs> I rarely talk about single stock names other than posting research and whatnot. Um, but on Twitter, my handle is Val with catalyst. I know it's really lame, but I couldn't <laughs> think of anything better that day. At some point I, I may change it, but, um, you know, Val with Catalyst on Twitter, my DMs are open. If you want to know anything about a specific SPAC you're looking at, or want to talk with the market, you know, feel free to reach out. I love talking about this stuff as, as you can uh, attest to. So Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, Louis, thanks so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I I look forward to our next update. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. Thank you. cast.